Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. All right, well, let's kick this off tonight. Welcome to Wednesday Night Networking. We're going to have a, basically just a networking session here tonight, a question and answer. There's no presentations. There's no formal part of this. Uh, we try and keep things really easy going and lighthearted. Uh, by all means, uh, this is a networking session. Uh, right now, there's 106 people sitting at your table at the conference. You can talk to any one of them. So if there's an interesting person or they had a really good question that you think you've got a, a solution for it, or maybe you want to ask them a question about it, by all means, private chat, uh, message them in chat. You can talk to any, any of these people. Um, you can you know, be aware that you can talk to somebody privately or you can talk to somebody or everybody at once. So uh, just make sure you know which one you're doing, depending what you're saying, I guess. Um, but yeah, we are going to kick this off. Um, uh, first off, we got a few sponsors to, to thank tonight. The Gateway Research Organization is our main host here tonight. Uh, it's their platform that we're using and uh, very appreciative to them. Also, the Grey Wooded Forge Association is helping out with some uh, um, funds as well to keep us going, to keep uh, speakers coming in and things like that. So big thank you to, to uh, them as well. And uh, yeah, they are uh, the Applied Research Associations. There's quite a few of them across our province here in Alberta, but I'm sure, you know, if you're from another part of the world that you've got these nonprofit organizations too. They do experiments, they do extension work. Uh, I'm going to say probably 90% of the education I've gotten over the last 20 years has been from uh, what the Applied Research Associations are doing. They bring in the speakers. Right. They bring in, you know, top notch speakers like Dallas Mount um, and we get to uh, learn from that. And I've been doing that for 20 years with these groups. So I've been a part of, of uh, Grow for a long time. Uh, very, very happy with them. Our other sponsor tonight is actually our charity sponsor is uh, Nervous Angus. Their sponsorship tonight is going to go to charity, 100%. Um, Amber and I went down to Bogota, Colombia a couple of years ago when we um, attended a missions there and helped out feeding some street children and stuff in one of the roughest and most dangerous parts of Bogota. And uh, we've been, you know, continually uh, sending some funds down there to help them out because it's just an awesome operation. We've seen it firsthand. So uh, we thought, you know what, if, you know, we don't need any more sponsorship to run this program, why not? Let's use it for some charity. So uh, thank you very much, Aaron, and uh, appreciate your sponsorship. And from that, uh, I guess that's all the rules we need to do. There's not many, very many rules here. It's pretty open-ended. Amber's going to follow through in chat, and, and if you've got some questions for either Dallas or myself, fire them in chat, and then Amber will bring them up in order that they're, they're uh, typed in there. So, um, I do want to just yeah. add into that. Um, if you don't have a mic or you don't feel comfortable talking, please don't feel that you have to or you have to miss out on the questions. Just put your question into chat, make a note in it that you want me to read it out, and we can do it that way too. So don't feel like you have to miss out just because you can't add to chat. But don't be shy because the video is not going to be recorded. So you can you can turn your video on at least if you can. <laughs> it makes it more personal if you can see somebody who's asking the question. So uh, with that, let's introduce the topic tonight. We're going to talk a real broad topic tonight about economics. And uh, I thought who better to talk about economics than, than the owner of Ranching for Profit, uh, Dallas Mount. Um, I actually took Ranching for Profit in 2001. And I am, you know, very forthright in saying it was the best money I ever spent on my education, without a doubt. Um, I can honestly say that it was a fantastic course. I learned more in one week in that course than I did in a year of in, in academia. 
So uh, really happy to have Dallas here. Um, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself a little bit, Dallas. And then, you know, what do you want to talk about about economics today? Give us a, you know, two or three minute intro on the topic and yourself and what's happened tonight. Sure. Thank you for that, Steve. Thanks for the kind comments on, on Ranching for Profit. Yeah, I'm pretty blessed. I get to stand on the shoulders of some giants that have come before me. So uh, Stan Parsons uh, was the founder of, of Ranch Management Consultants, which is our company that runs the Ranching for Profit School. And uh, he owned and ran the company for about 20 years. And uh, Dave Pratt uh, took over for him in about 2000 and ran it, had about a 20 year run. And uh, my wife, Dixie, and I bought the business from Dave and Kathy Pratt uh, coming on two years now. Uh, so it, uh, it I, I suppose I better give it a 20 year run or I haven't, haven't lived up to the rest of those guys. So um, yeah, so my background, I wasn't raised in ag. Um, I, my dad was a Methodist pastor and we traveled around a lot, lived in a bunch of different spots. And uh, when I was in late high school, we lived in Utah and I found some friends that were uh, ag people. So that kind of drew me to ag. And uh, when I went to college and animal science sounded like fun. So away we went. Um, uh, I ended up working on several ranches during my college tenure and after college. And, and that was really, uh, you know, those people that let me uh, explore and break their stuff and was really, uh, you know, appreciate what they gave to me because that that was really where I learned most of what I knew about ag. After, so I finished, did a couple degrees, uh, spent a couple years out working in, in ranching feedlot areas, and uh, and then went to work for University of Wyoming Extension. Um, I did a 20-year career there uh, with UW Extension, where I worked with livestock producers on, uh, and they kind of turned me loose and said, you know, work on them with, with whatever you want. So uh, a friend and I put together a school called the Ranch Practicum School, and uh, we ran that for, oh, maybe 15 years or so together, and, and it was, we didn't realize at the time, but it was very much based on what ranching for profit was doing. Uh, we were doing an eight day class, uh, two days a month over a, over about a, a four month period. And, um, you know, I, I went to ranching for profit kind of saying, well, I just want to peek inside, see what these guys are doing. Right. Cause we're trying to do this. And when I went to that, it, it really blew my mind. And I felt like they'd created you know, 30 years ago, what I was trying to build from scratch and, and had spent that time refining the instruction of it. And, and, uh, and so it, I was really passionate about it. And uh, luckily enough, Dave Pratt asked me if I wanted to learn to be an instructor. And I said, yes, and started teaching alongside him. And uh, uh, he's probably the best classroom educator I've ever had the chance to work with was was Dave and watching him, watching him teach. So it was, uh, I really loved working with the clients of Ranching for Profit. I, I felt like I had more impact uh, in a week at Ranching for Profit than I did in a whole year of, of doing what I was doing with Extension. So um, I didn't have to think long when Dave asked me if I was interested in being the next owner of the company. And uh, so so it's been a, been a, a, a great ride, a, a lot of fun. I hope we're just getting started. Um, but so I kind of came to economics and, and the whole business management side of ranching, uh, you know, wasn't formally trained in it, uh, but really learned it from, from some other greats who've been doing it. And, uh, you know, it's really become a passion of mine because I see the need for getting the business side of the farming and ranching right. Uh, you know, one of the, the, statements that our company is founded on is knowing how to run livestock or farm or raise crops, knowing how to raise livestock or raise crops is not the same thing as knowing how to run a business that raises livestock or raises crops. They're two entirely different things. And, you know, we, we bring our kids up in it and we, you know, 
teach them 4-H and FFA. And, and that's all about production for the most part. I mean, they really heavily focus on, you know, producing, producing and, and producing has really nothing to do with being profitable or really very little to do with being profitable. So, you know, if, if, if you want this to really create the life that you, that you should, I think, want it to create, uh, we really learned to need to be good about getting our business right and about, uh, you know, structuring that business to produce those outcomes. And, and so that's kind of what we've developed a niche for uh, is being the business management school for, for those in ag. Excellent. Thank you, Dallas. Awesome. So we're going uh, to touch base on economics tonight. Um, again, my little two cents about it, kind of what Dallas said there, um, we're not just farmers right? We need to be business owners. We need to manage a business. And, and that's really what I learned at the Ratchet for Profit School is understanding that there was more than just production practices. Because when I, when I took it, I was really good at the production practices, right? I was doing awesome things. My numbers were great. My weaning weights were good. I was feeding cheap. And when I got home, I ran my farm through the you know, calculator and I was losing money, right? I could be as productive as I want, but I was doing the wrong things. That's one of my, uh, uh, favorite quotes from uh, Ranching for Profit is that the easiest way to make more money uh, is to stop doing things. And that's what I had to do. There was some things that I thought I was really good at that once I run the numbers for in my environment wasn't working. Uh, and so I switched to the things that were working and we've been going forward ever since. So um, very powerful to understand the business side. Uh, and I'm, I just found it. I told Dallas here the other day, the, the, the original book that I was given to take the Ranching for Profit School was by Stan Parsons. Uh, if you want to be a cowboy, get a job. And that pretty well describes the book, right? Like if you want to go out and rope and ride and, you know, pull calves and do fencing, yeah, go get a job somewhere else. If you want to run a business, a farm business, then you need to be inside doing the economics and the finances and human resources and all those things that maybe don't sound quite as fun, but that's the business side. So one of the the terms that I use all the time, and, and I think originally I probably got it from Ranch for Profit, is I use that we need to make sure our businesses and our you know, profit centers and our, our farms are repeatable. I think in Ranch for Profit, they talked about being franchisable, right? A franchise, like being able to repeat what you're doing. Um, so yeah, we're going to kind of discuss that a little bit today. And what you're doing, is it repeatable? Could you take the same situation and, and duplicate it somewhere else and hire someone to do all the work? And would it still make you a profit? Or do you just have yourself a job that, you know, you're just getting the, the wage out of it. That's all you're doing. So we've got to make sure that our businesses are repeatable. Um, and it's a different time now. Um, you know, what your the past generation did for farming doesn't necessarily work for us now. Okay, we got to look at things differently. We've got to change and adapt to the circumstances. Um, so that's part of running a business. Uh, mentor of mine, uh, Don Campbell said, well, if you spend too much time working, you don't have enough time to be thinking. And thinking is where you make the money. So um, that, that's a, a very memorable quote from, from Don Campbell, too. Nice, nice. But let's explore that uh, way you brought up there a little bit, um, you know, the, the franchisable format. So if you think about the businesses in town, the businesses on Main Street, and if your town's like my town, you, you drive down the, the Main Street where there used to be a lot of thriving businesses, and there's a lot of shuttered, shuttered doors. And if you look at small business administration statistics um, of those businesses that start new, new startup businesses within 10 years, how many of them do you think will still be around? The average average retention of, of small business startups. What do you think it is, Steve? About 
Uh, they would say Close. it's less than that. They would say it's, it's more like a, about 10%. So nine out of 10 are going to go out. Um, so, you know, but what does that happen in agriculture? You know, if we look at our neighbors, farms and ranches, 10 years later, nine out of 10 of them going out and no, they're not. So, so why is that? Why do those small business administration statistics not apply to agriculture? And the answer is, is because most people in agriculture are willing to subsidize their business. Okay. And, and we're not talking about government subsidies. Okay. We don't need those. We do just fine job subsidizing our businesses by ourselves. Thank you. And so we, we subsidize our business with, with what, right? Uh, off farm labor. Somebody works in town. There's an off farm job that's supporting the family living. So we don't have to draw that out of the business. Um, we, we use inherited wealth um, to subsidize the business. It's not a bad thing, but, but how many of your neighbors would be farming or ranching today if they hadn't inherited what they started with? They had to build it from scratch, right? Uh, you know, so we use, um, we don't pay ourselves. We work for free. Um, so it, land appreciation is another way we can subsidize that business, live on, live on the appreciation of the land. Um, so, you know, we really think that, that if we're really ranching for profit, we need to kick the legs out of all those subsidies and, and make the business support itself. So, so that's probably kind of a nice segue to um, economics and finance. And I've seen you talk about this before, Steve, and, and I, I think you kind of share our thoughts on this, that, that, and, and this is where people get pretty confused, right? Is they say, well, I'm making money at the end of the year, right? Or I have money at the end of the year. What, what do I need to be worried about this for? Okay? And, and so you could have a business that financially cash flows, but economically uh, could be losing you know, $100,000 a year. Okay? And then on the other side, we could have a business that economically works, but, but can't cash flow. And so, so they're really two different things. Um, economics fundamentally answers the question, is it profitable? Okay. So economics, is it profitable? And then the corollary question is, how can I make it more profitable? Right. So when we look inside of our businesses and we say, okay, well, is it profitable? Well, yeah, but how can I make it more profitable? Okay. So economics is going to lead us to identify the things in our business that are working and the things that are not working. And in economic analysis, we're going to use things like opportunity cost. Most of you guys have heard of opportunity cost, and some people roll their eyes at it, right? Because, oh, opportunity cost is just this fancy academic exercise, right? Well, well, really what opportunity costs answer is, if I did nothing, what could I make? So, so by doing something, I probably should make more than by doing nothing. That's a good thing to know, I think, right? <laughs> so what would I make by doing nothing? So, there, so economics, we're going to use opportunity cost. Answer, is it profitable? Finance is about how does the cash flow? Can I afford to do it? Okay. So it, you might have an enterprise that economically is really profitable, but you can't afford to do it. Okay. So, so think of a startup rancher who's, you know, trying to pay their bills as they're going and they've run their numbers and they say, well, I'm going to make bread heifers or I'm, I'm even, even better. I'm going to make cows bread with their second calf. Right. And I'm going to sell these economically. It might be really profitable, but the, it doesn't cash flow very well. Right. Cause I got to lay out the money to buy the calf. If I'm buying it, I got to run it for a year, turn it into a bread heifer. I got to run it for another year, turn it into a cow bread with her second calf. So cash flow wise, I might go broke before I, I sell anything. So there, there's two different things, economics and finance. And, and when we talk about uh, doing a gross margin analysis, we're talking about doing an economic analysis. Excellent. Thanks, Dallas. Yeah. Um, it's surprising how many people over the you know last however many years I've been teaching that don't understand there's a difference between economics and finances. And I was one of them, right? Until I you know went to Ranching for Profit, I didn't know the difference. It was just money. 
right? It didn't make any, make a difference to me, but I've had bankers actually encourage me to do something that is financially viable, that is economically unsound, yeah. right? They'll do that. Um, but if something's economical, but if you might have trouble financing it, they won't, they won't even look at you. Yeah. So we have to determine that, right? That's our job, not our banker's job. So, right. Right. Excellent. Spot on. So we do have questions coming in already. Uh, the first one is from Mark. Okay. It's, it's actually, well, he said, put it, post it to everybody in Alberta. Um, but I'd be interested to hear what you guys have to say for this. What would you say to someone looking to move to Alberta and run a regenerative family farm? Is it doable? Well, I guess I'm from Alberta. I'll try and tackle that one first, Dallas. Um, Alberta is in a economic slump, like kind of the rest of like every, everywhere else right now. Um, land prices are still fairly high. They're a little like, you know, there's not much selling right now, but um, trying to get into land in Alberta is most of Alberta, especially in the closer to the urban centers is pretty expensive, right? I mean, we got Edmonton and Calgary, which is the third and the fifth largest cities in Canada. Right. So we've got a, a lot of we've had a lot of growth in the past year. So things are, you know, values are uh, w- way higher than they should be, I think, for the area. I honestly think there should be a correction soon. I'm, <laughs> I'm just guessing, but I think land values are going to maybe take a crash here in the next 5, 10, 20 years, maybe. Um, they can't keep going up forever. But I mean, my business started out by leasing land. Right. I, I can't cash flow owning it, um, you know, for every every one quarter of land that I would, you know, if I buy it, I need 10 more to rent it just to keep a positive cash flow so that I can, you know, afford to pay the payments on the on the one that I'm owning. So, you know, depends how you get into it. When I started ranching here in Alberta, um, I technically moved from Saskatchewan um, up here to the expensive land. And at the time they were talking about everybody was moving to the new world, they'd sell a quarter of land in Alberta, and they could move to Saskatchewan and, and buy five quarters of land for the same value. Um, so everybody was, you know, heading, heading east. But I went the other way. I just had to have a different business plan. I lease all my land. I, you know, started, started up with the custom grazing and, and have a completely different business structure. So, yes, it can be done, but every environment is different. Are you buying, you know, are you going to try and lease land down by uh, Leftbridge? in the irrigation center where land is crazy expensive, or are you going to go up to uh, uh, Manning or, or, you know, way up North and try and get some land where it's going to be more reasonable. So again, that comes down to some economics, right? You need to punch some numbers and, and get the actual situation. This is the land we're renting. What are the numbers going to be? Can I make it viable? Right. A blanket statement across Alberta. That's almost impossible to answer. So we could work with ranchers from all over, uh, you know, from we, we got one ranch. It's in our executive lake program that has land right outside Washington, D.C. And they actually run yearling cattle on pasture land right outside Washington, D.C. Crazy. Uh, and then, you know, out into the red desert of Wyoming or the desert of Nevada. Uh, and so you always hear that, right? You can't cash flow land with with agriculture anymore. And, and my response is get over it. Um, you know, there, 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 where you say it can't be done, watch out because somebody's doing it. Okay. Um, but I think also it's important to separate the two decisions. So owning land is a separate business decision from running a ranch. Okay. And, and there's good reasons to own land. There's also really foolish land purchases that are made uh, with, with people that uh, a land purchase is going to put them in a cash flow crisis, kind of like Steve was talking about. Um, so really think about that land. Owning land is really a land investment. Okay, land is a great place to park capital 
and get to enjoy the appreciation from that. There are some things that land kicks off and that forage resource is one of those things that we use, right? But it's a very, it's a very different business decision from running a ranch. So you, you could run, you could run a, a thousand cows and not own a single stinking acre of land. And you could own a million acres of land and not run one cow. Okay. They're, they're two different decisions. Now I understand why people want to own land. I, we own some land, my family and I bought some land. Um, but it's, it's a different business decision from running a ranch. So, so yeah, you can make it work wherever. There's always going to be somewhere where land is cheaper. Um, their challenges are going to be different. Uh, when we got to go to Australia a couple of years ago, I uh, got to go to some places where you can still buy land for $75 an acre. Um, and so get out there and knock yourself out guys. Cause they were in their sixth year of drought had destocked 90% and waiting for it to rain. So every place has its challenges. So I think those are great responses. Next up we have Suzanne. Are you ready to go Suzanne? Yeah, I'm here. Awesome. Okay. I'm from Pincher Creek. And my question is, uh, when, when buying hay from a neighbor, what dollar figure can we put on the nutrients um, per ton that we're gaining or transferring on our land? Yeah, good, good question. Can I take that one first, Steve? Yes. All right, yeah, good question. I, I, wanna, I wanna go Pincher Creek Wrangler. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, so what dollar value can we put on the, on the, I haven't run those numbers in a while. Um, I, last time Garrish and I sat down and ran those, I think we were coming up with about $60 for a, for a ton of hay for what the nutrients were worth. Um, I doubt that's probably gone down. Uh, it might even, might even be worth more, but, but there's going to be a point where, where those added nutrients, if you've got the soil healthy enough, I think those added nutrients are, are not going to be as much value um, as if that soil's depleted. Um, so I think there's going to be some maximums and, and values there. So I would have a hard time saying everybody can budget $60 of the value of that ton of hay uh, in nutrients. Um, but I, I've seen it where uh, bale grazing or, or putting some low quality hay where you're getting a lot of waste and the nutrients can can double the production within a couple of years of, of some ground. Um, Steve, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I got a couple points for that. Um, first off, I, I don't believe that the nutrients is the real big benefit to bring in that, that you know, if you're going to be bale grazing out there, I honestly think it's the water holding capacity. Okay, because I can add as much fertility as I want to the land. If I don't get water, I don't get anything growing. But if I can build um, water holding capacities to build up my soil, then I get the, the biology working, then I get the fertility for free. So it doesn't really matter that we brought in nutrients. So to me, if I'm bale grazing, it's for water holding capacity. You know, in my area, we're, you know, we're not super dry, but we're not, you know, real wet either. Water is a big concern for me. Um, so that's the, the big thing. I used to talk about all the, you know, all the nutrients I was bringing in as well for my bale grazing. But yeah, I, I learned that it's, it's actually water. Um, the other thing I can add to that is probably 20 years ago, I ran the calculator. Of, there was a study that the Alberta government did uh, for every ton of hay that went through a cow. It came out, I, I believe these are 20 year old numbers in my head. So uh, bear with me. I think it was just under $16 uh, per ton of hay that came out in the manure. So that's NKP and S they put a value to it. So you inflate that to whatever the prices are now. And again, like Dallas said, you know, you know, does it really affect your land that much anyway? To me, it was the water to begin with. So when I back that down, the number I've used for many, many years is 30 cents per head per day. So um, whatever, I'll, I'll spare you all the calculations that I did, but I came up for a dry cow every day that I'm feeding imported hay on my land, 
I figured I was getting 30 cents worth of value. Now, is that in fertility? That's how I originally calculated it. But now I believe, no, it's just water holding capacity. It's all added carbon to my soil. That's what I want, the carbon. I don't really care about the other nutrients. There's tons of nutrients in the ground already. Hey, thank you. Great. Uh, next up, we have Brandon. Brandon, are you ready to go? Yeah, hi. Nice, nice to see you again, Steve and Amber. It's been a while. I uh, want to first of all say thank you. I appreciate all these meetings. I don't always get to attend, but it's enjoyable when I can. Uh, my question is uh, particularly with a situation we deal with. My wife and I are working with her parents who are trying to a degree to work towards retirement. Uh, so we've been trying to find a reasonable way to support two families on the farm. But having said that, they have this expression of pride and the misery, the struggles, uh, the sacrifices that they've made um, in order to make the farm run and to have that lifestyle where they don't have to be in town and have another job. So is there a way to encourage looking at a farm from a business perspective as opposed to a lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, I was in that boat many, many years ago, and I ended up, I, I broke away from my family farm because it wasn't working. We we couldn't make it work. So if you ever figure out how to get your dad to work with you, you let me know. Because <laughs> he still doesn't buy what I what I teach about. Um, he's still continuously grazing. He just hobby farms at home now. But yeah, he he's still a grain farmer through and through. And and uh, I think last time I was down there, I got called a trader. So uh, <laughs> um, that being said, I, I wrote an article. I think I shared it uh, today on my Facebook page. If you want to look at it, um, um, is is your farm repeatable? Was the, the title of it? And that's talking about the differences between the last generations, the way they farmed and how they made a profit versus what you need to do now. So trying to introduce them to that difference, maybe just letting them read the article is a, is a start. Um, but to be able to understand the differences between that, you can, you, you know, what we're doing in the last generation isn't going to get us to the next, the next uh, tipping point either. Right. Um, so yeah, Dallas, you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I appreciate the coin, the question, Brandon. Um, I think it really gets to the core of, of what makes these businesses successful or not. Um, the, the human side of it is, is, is what the determining factor is. So um, I, I think your question's hitting on, hitting on a great point. If I were giving you some suggestions as to, as to how to, so, so the, it sounded like getting uh, the, the older generation on board with some changes that are probably necessary to make the business actually profitable enough to support two families. Um, Rather than coming with solutions, uh, I think it'd be important for you to come with questions and and good questions and and really listen to the responses of those questions and make sure they feel a hundred percent understood uh, from from their position. And and so what that questioning might sound like is um, you know gosh we 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 love what you guys have built uh, we love what's what's come before us um, we so want to carry on this legacy and and you know we so want to carry on uh, the 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 family presence here and so we'd really like to learn from you uh, what are what are really important things uh, to make this thing happen um, and so pulling from them things like you know if if you could ask the question of uh, what do you want this place to be like ten years from now. Um, you know, okay, we want it to be uh, healthy land. We want it to be 
you know, a, a place where our, our kids can come and learn the value of work. Uh, so we want it to be in agriculture. We, we want it to be profitable enough to support families. We want to have uh, homes that we're comfortable in, right? So, so pull these things from them and, and put them on some kind of a, uh, you know, we use a lot of flip charts or put them up somewhere so people know that they're understood and that they're heard. And then start asking questions like, well, what do you think it's going to take to make that happen, right? If, if we continue to, if things go the way they are now, are we going to be able to meet those objectives, right? And so rather than coming and saying, well, hey, I've got all these great ideas of how we could turn this into a business, uh, immediately they're going to put on what we call the black hat, right? Of, of what are the, the negatives of that and, and the downsides of the different proposals. And that's the way everybody reacts. I mean, that's the way you and I would react if somebody brought an, an idea to us. So, so rather than that, if you get them thinking about what do we want it to be, what might it take to do that? Um, how could you see that working? Um, let's run those numbers together, right? Let's pull those things out um, and then start some solution building from the ground up and, and, you know, and then at some point, too, there's there's only so much a person can do. And once you've tried and tried and tried, uh, then then you kind of have to make a decision of is is this something I want to hitch my wagon to? And, um, you know, I I see too many people that I think stay too long in in situations that they'd probably be better to, to go away from and to create some experience elsewhere. And sometimes, sadly, sadly, it takes that to create the impetus for change uh, to, to come back to a, a business that's ready to embrace some change. So. I'm actually an example of that, Dallas. I left the farm, right? I, I've got a family farm at home that nobody's farming. Um, but it was probably the best decision I ever made because my dad and I get along great now, right? We tried farming together for a couple of years and it was a, an all out war all the time. Um, and I just said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. Now we look forward to visiting each other. Like, you know, he's happy when I come down and we don't, we've never had this kind of relationship that we have now. I think that's more important than me being on the family farm. The fact that I have a good relationship with my dad. So human, res, human resources is probably the number one uh, part of my business. Okay. I'm going to say economics and finances is second and third. Um, production practices are down below, but human resources is probably number one. And, and that, you know, it sounds like, oh, yeah, it's, it was a bad breakup and I ended up leaving my family farm. No, it wasn't a bad breakup. Um, you know, we, we left on mutual terms and he continued to farm and then he rented the land out and I've built up my own business and now we get along great. So I think that was a very positive move in my situation. But uh, yeah, you bet. I love that response, Dallas. I think that um, it's something that I am guilty of overlooking quite often and thinking, I am so excited about this. Let's go out and do this right now. And why aren't you excited about it with me? Um, but I, I do often myself even miss that. Well, why are you not excited? What, what's behind this? You know, where do you see it going? Um, so I, I think that's a fantastic response. You can tell she's the gas pedal and I'm the brakes. It's true. <laughs> in some things, in some things. Uh, our next question is from Laurel Ann Gordon. I'm going to read this one out. What are the steps of evaluating a potential new profit center? Do a gross margin analysis on it and then ask the question of, are we going to have any, any new overheads come into the business if we do this? Um, so we, the gross margin is going to tell us what kind of contribution is this going to make to, to overheads? Um, and then you'll look and say, well, if we do this, we have to add these uh, tools, machines, labor units. Uh, what are the new overheads? And then what's left at the end? And in what's left at the end, is it interesting enough to make to make it happen? 
Um, I think sometimes we we leap on things that are small potatoes um, when when we should wait for something that's that's a bigger yes. Um, you know, so if it, oftentimes when we're talking about things in EL, uh, the number I hear thrown around is it, it better make a $50,000 difference to the business, or this is just a distraction, right? So, so it, different people with different scale of business, that number is going to be different. Um, but yeah, do a gross margin analysis on it. Um, and, and simply what that is, is what value is it creating? What direct costs is it incurring? And so how much is left? And then what new overheads are we going to, are we going to have when this happens? And, uh, and see if it's got a big enough yes behind it. Yeah, excellent. Gross margin analysis, that'd be my answer too. Um, you got to put the numbers to it. Every situation's different. Every environment's different, right? You could do a gross margin in in uh, Alberta, and it'll be totally different than the one in Wyoming because our environments are different. Our situations are different. Our farms are different. The market value, and that's a, a key point. You have to use things at market value. Um, you, you can't be selling hay to yourself at the at the you know cost of product to produce it. You've got to put it at market value. Things like that. You've got to make sure you've you're you're putting the numbers in correctly, obviously. But uh, yeah, definitely a gross margin. Probably the biggest breakthrough my farm ever had was learning how to do a gross margin analysis. And next up, we have Brenda. Are you ready to go, Brenda? Oh sure. Um, okay. <laughs> I think we've really discussed the, the point that I tried to raise, and it's something that uh, I've noticed in the, in the years that I've been working on the fringes of agriculture. Those of us who make our money from agriculture rather than from actual farming often um, retain our incomes while our farming friends are losing their businesses. And I think that the uh, what I've noticed is that it takes a seriously long time to unhook the lifestyle from the business. And uh, I see so many producers losing everything because they can't unhook the lifestyle from the business. So Dallas and Steve, I wonder what, if you have any additional thoughts on that, um, that, uh, that particular phenomenon that I think is unique to um, all, all aspects of farming and ranching, whether regardless of the commodity group that you're involved in. I, I think it goes to paradigms, Brenda. Um, and, and maybe the, the right way to get at that paradigm is what is your relationship to your farmer ranch? If, if the first answer to that is it's a lifestyle, uh, then I think, I think there's going to be a problem if you want business outcomes from it. I, I think that's one of the paradigms we help change through the Ranching for Profit School is, is we challenge your relationship to your farmer ranch. And, and that challenge is meant to say, is it a business? Do you want it to be a business? And what does it take to, to make it a business um, and bring those skills to it? Jo Jolene Brown is somebody I've, I've appreciated listening to. And Jolene says, are we a family first business or are we a business first family? And, and the first time I heard that, I thought, well, well, we're a family first, right? In my house, we, we put our family ahead. But, but what she's getting at is she says, no, she says, let's get our business done so that we can be a family. And so let's be a business first family. Let's, let's get our business in place. Let's treat our business as a business. And then let's enjoy being a family. I would add to that. If you want your farm to be a lifestyle, then I challenge you, make it profitable so you can remain your lifestyle. Right. You, you need to be able to to work the numbers to make it so you can stay on. And th that doesn't mean you, you can't have an off farm job. Uh, Dallas, years ago, I remember when I was taking ranching for profit, somebody down there was, you know, it, it's I was getting new into this field and 
And there was a lot of criticism if you if you had an off-farm job, right? Right? That was a bad thing. Oh, you had an off-farm job. And I remember the phrase from Ranch for Profit, uh, you never heard of somebody having an off-mini-mart job, right? If you're the owner of the mini-mart, you don't have an off-mini-mart job, right? But of course, we have these off-farm jobs. But I mean, I was a very small farm. I still am a relatively very small farm. So here's what I learned about the off-farm job, I guess. If your farm isn't big enough to supply enough of a wage to support your family. Let's say your family needs $40,000 a year to live. Okay, if you've got a small farm and it's producing enough to pay you $20,000 in wages, then somebody from the household might have to work off farm to get the other 20,000. Okay, I have no issues with that. Your farm is just small. Now, where I have the problem with it is if you have your farm, you need $40,000 to to survive. Now someone works off farm and makes 60,000 because you need 40 for your farm, your family, and then 20,000 gets injected into the farm. Okay, that's where I have a problem with it. And I'm not saying you might not have to do that to start up your farm, or, you know, on a bad year, you might have to, but hopefully you have more good years where you're taking more than that out. So um, that's one thing that I, for years, people criticized me when I started because I had this off farm job, but I had a really small farm. So um, it's perfectly fine, as long as we're not subsidizing the farm with that off farm income. I think one of the things to keep in mind too is that it's okay that not everything is a profit center. Our llama is not a profit center. However, I think you have to keep in mind that, well, we can't even say he's a pet, but (laughs) not everything is going to make a profit, but I think you have to be cognizant of the fact that, okay, I have these horses and they sit there and they eat hay and I never even ride them. They probably aren't going to make a profit on our farm, but I I think to just recognize that is, is an important thing. I got to give a little defense there to the llama. He's actually my herd effector. When he gets out and into the cattle, he causes an awful lot of animal impact when he was flying through the herd. So he's a, he's a tool. He's working on the soil. Sounds like, sounds like somebody trying to justify a money-losing enterprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one llama we got for free. So uh, All right. <laughs> Our next question, I'm actually, I didn't give them a lot of notice because I got a little bit confused in chat here, which happens. Uh, So they might not be ready right away, but Sunrise Ranch, are you ready to go on? Hey guys, can you hear me? Yeah, we can. That was quick. Hey, good to to see all your smiling faces. Thanks for your, uh, thanks for giving me a chance to ask a question. Um, Steve, you might chime in on this, Dallas. That's primarily focused for you. Our new ranch is going to have a guest ranch facility on it, and the idea is we we operate real heavily in the urban area of San Diego, LA, and Orange County. So our customers are down here, and and we've we've acquired this ranch in Wyoming. It's got uh, some small cabins on it, and a kind of like a main dining facility and a, and a gathering hall, in addition to some homes. We're going to live there, um, and the idea is to bring our customers down or up from San Diego, LA area. Uh, I think we can probably, you know, max out at, you know, two or four people per cabin. Uh, We're going to set up a pretty, you know, reasonable schedule and only do it a few months out of the year. But what I'm having trouble with, and this, I I don't know, Dallas, if this is something you can even, you know, get into, it may be so complicated, but I'm having trouble understanding if say we want to add an enterprise, like we used to do milk cows, for example, uh, when we first started the ranch and I loved having Jersey cows are so much fun. And the kids got to milk cows and it was just a blast. We they're, super 
they were just awesome. And we always had great milk. We always had great cream. I mean, it was incredible. So as part of the, one of the things that Wyoming allows you is your guests can actually have that. However, they're extremely labor intensive. They're very, you know, you got to feed them the prime feed. Um, you got to be there morning and night, uh, or there's going to be a big giant white explosion. Um, and so what we wanted to do is as the guests come onto the ranch, we want, and I know I'm getting detailed here. We wanted to be able to say, Hey, you know what? You're welcome to enjoy some milk from a cow. We literally milked this morning. The problem is what I'm having trouble with Dallas is if we can imagine that that's got, you know, a lot of costs involved in terms of the labor and everything, all the expenses to go to that. How do I evaluate the, and I don't even know what you'd call it. Is it like a goodwill? I mean, like it's an added benefit of something. I don't know how I can put a figure on that. And we're really struggling as a family with, Hey, do we, you know, do we invest 10 grand in great milk cows and milking equipment and get this all going? Is it going to bring us anything? Or is this just a, a normal risk of business? You give it a shot. Oh, it didn't work or we're not doing it anymore. Is that, is it more of a trial and error? How do I put a dollar figure on that? Do, do you have any input on that? Yeah, I get, uh, I do. Um, I, I think the, the question you need to ask is how can we have these milk cows and not have the, uh, them there year round, right? If, if, if the guest experience isn't year round, uh, there's probably a, a, more of a win-win in here somewhere than rather just the win-lose that I think you're, you're painting it into. Um, but it, to kind of pull up a little bit, are, are there enterprises that we might choose to have that are, that are money losing enterprises for other reasons? Um, and so the one I probably am most familiar with would be uh, somebody that, that owns a ranch that enjoys coming to the ranch and, and the aesthetic of it. Um, and, and so maybe like making hay is one of those things, right? When you're, when you're coming down the drive of the ranch, we love the view of the mowed meadows and, and these kind of things. And maybe the ranch isn't, isn't near big enough to, uh, you know, to justify having all its hay equipment and they're hundred miles from anybody else. So there's no way to get a custom hayer in there. Right. So, so then a question they might look at is how much are we willing to lose in our hay making enterprise to create the aesthetic that we want to create? Right. And, and I think a guy can get to that number with just with just running some margin analysis and putting putting the opportunity costs in there. Um, but even in that example I just gave, there's probably a way to say, how can we have that aesthetic and not own all the machinery to do that and not make it such a money loser? So the, there's probably a better question to approach it with to to really get down of I want this, but I don't want to absorb all these costs year round. So how can I have a more of a win win? Yeah, I agree. Same thing. I, I went and did a consulting one time for a farm and uh, they were losing money at just about every profit center. They were losing at the cows. They were losing at the you know, yearlings, losing grazing, losing at the haying, losing at the backgrounding, but they were making a killing on the direct marketing of all natural organic beef into the city. They were the only farm that was supplying this. So, okay, do I tell them you should just stop doing all those other ones? But where is he going to get this, you know, thousand pound all natural or organic, you know, grass fed steer? So we, we had to tweak them. So we're, we're willing to lose a couple, you know, on, on some of these profit centers because that last one is making so much money. Okay, so where does the balance come in? Can we get some synergies? Can we make them uh, lose less money? <laughs> right? Can we start tweaking to get them to break even at least? Um, because we can't get rid of them or else we lose our big moneymaker at the end. So kind of, kind of a similar situation. Is it worth you worth the while to lose a little bit of money on the milking as a marketing tool for the 
for the uh, bed and breakfast or whatever you called it. Um, so yeah, it comes down to, do they balance out on, are you further ahead in the, in the end, I guess. You, you, human resources has veto power over economics and finances. Got it. Okay. That's a, that's a great quote. Human resources has veto power over. Okay. Yeah. You so can choose a, it, to lose something. You can have a little bit of a low price leader as long as the overall operation is profitable. I would say so. Yes. I mean, okay. ideally try and get them all profitable, but in some situations it's not going to happen, right? Like that, that fella, there's no way I can convince him to stop doing all those profit centers because then he has no business. Right. Yeah. If you, Got it. If you have an unprofitable part of the operation though, I would say just make sure you know that it's unprofitable. Be aware of that and be aware of how much it is causing you to lose. So if, if you, you know, maybe this year, well, the whole operation is really profitable. You know, I know we're losing here, but we're, we're gaining here. But if the next year, suddenly your numbers aren't looking the same, you need to make sure that you're aware of where that loss is happening. Right. And we should have something that's somewhat jettisonable, right? In the sense that we go, it's, you know, we didn't build an entire milk barn, right? Or something that's like a, a cost that we just can't shed no matter what. So make it somewhat liquid as we experiment with it and go, hey, it turns out that we're the only ranch that you can go see that. You can go milk a cow in the morning and have milk at night with your cookies. And it's like, oh my gosh, it was the most popular thing. We're so glad we did that. It blew up on Facebook. Everybody wants to come. Or, oh, well, that was a total disaster. Let's sell those cows tomorrow. And the stuff is gone and my wife's not killing me because we got no money at all because we blew it all on a bunch of cows I can't get rid of. <laughs> Let us know if you decide to go through with that. And the next time we're through that area, we might have to come and milk a cow. Yeah, you guys come down and it'll be really fun. You know, we did it our first couple of years as ranching. And I'll tell you, we would do ranch tours and you would not believe the number of people that have never seen a cow get milked. And it was just unbelievable. We, we landed customers in that, in that year that 11 years later are still with us. And we haven't had milk cows for like, for like nine years, but they were so convinced that that was just the coolest thing they'd ever seen. And I remember this one lady, she actually, I said, she said, Oh, well, I would never drink that milk from a cow. And I go, well, where do you get your milk? And she goes, well, I, I get it from the store. And I go, huh? We got some disconnect problems here. <laughs> you and I might want to sit down and talk for a while. <laughs> so anyways, thanks guys for your help. Thank you. So Nisha seems to not be online anymore, but her question, I'm going to read it out because other people might have this question. And I know this has come out up actually in the last couple of weeks, a fair bit. Um, I'm looking for case studies on ranchers who re refinance their land or got a lower interest rate directly because of soil health increases. So have you guys heard of that? Do you think there's a possibility of it down the road? I've never done or heard anything like that. Have you, Dallas? No, I haven't. I, I guess I could think of some things connected to that, you know, with some of the carbon trading things. Um, there are some, oh, there's a word for it, uh, in, investors. It's kind of the... Um, angel investor group who are looking to put money with, with regen ag folks. Um, but uh, I think it's in pretty early stages now and I'm not hearing a lot of, of actual projects hitting the ground. So. Yeah. Until carbon credits are actually paying, you know, paying out at a decent amount. I don't think that's going to have any effect. Um, if anybody's interested, last week's podcast was all about carbon. If you wanted to go back and listen to that one. So. Yeah, we also have a video out for anybody interested. Um, it was a coffee shop talk with Stuart Austin, who did just make a deal with Microsoft to buy carbon credits. So that's something to look for on our YouTube channel. Uh, next question is from Dustin. Dustin, are you ready to go? 
Hey, everybody. Uh, yeah, my name is Dustin. I'm from the Athabasca, Alberta area. So not too far away from you guys or some of you anyways. Um, so in a gross margin analysis, how do you best evaluate the products and services that you would contribute? Um, like, hey, equipment labor, as an example, because um, I know a lot of us commonly use our cost production numbers in that analysis. And you were mentioning earlier, Steve, that you want to use the fair market value. So how do we bridge that gap? So I guess a little Dallas and I might have a, a different way of doing this, and that's perfectly okay, Dallas, if you want to uh, contradict me after. I like to do things very simple. It might not be perfectly accurate, but it's very simple. I like to take the equipment value of a similar uh, industry. Okay, so if I'm going to value the, the, you know, what my tractor's doing. Um, okay, let, let me, you know, phone down the road and find out what the guy's uh, hiring out his backhoe for. Right. If you want to, if I wanted to hire in a backhoe guy to come in, he's probably 125 bucks an hour. Right. So now I can, you know, okay. So if I want my tractor to make a money, um, then I need to be charging it at a reasonable rate. So it, you know, maybe my tractor's not worth as much as that backhoe is. So maybe I'll back it down a little bit. But I call it my from the hip yardage rate. So I will take an hourly rate for the uh, equipment and the operator. Um, you know, maybe it's a hundred bucks an hour, maybe it's 75 bucks an hour, you know, depending on what your equipment is. Um, my little uh, sidekick that I drive around, I bought it for 3,500 bucks. Um, I put it at 50 bucks an hour driver and, and equipment. It's kind of like a big quad. So I put in this real simple, quick and easy way to do this. And I'll get a, a guideline of, of what that value is worth. I actually have a profit center. I call it a, an equipment profit center that you can work out in your gross margin analysis as well. You can actually take all of your equipment on the farm and set it up as its own rental company. And you would rent that equipment from, you know, the equipment rental profit center. You would, you could rent it uh, to the cows, you know, keep track of the number of hours out there and rent it to the hay profit center and rent it to the uh, um, feeders, right? Every different profit center. And you can actually evaluate what your, uh, equipment is making as a profit as well. Um, so that's, that's simple way to do it. Um, Dallas, you got a, another way to look at that. Uh, we do it a bit different. Um, so, so the first one was on the hay. Um, so, so charge the, if you're feeding your hay to your cows, charge your cows, which you could sell that hay to somebody else for. Right. So, so we want to, we want to trade the things from different enterprises at, at their market price. Okay. So in that way, we'll lower, are the cows making money or is the hay making money? Right. So um, that's what we want to do there on, on the labor side of things, what Steve was talking about with those things, we do it a bit differently. Uh, we're going to create a, essentially a, a nut is what I've heard it called, which is a, it's a total dollar amount annually for those things. So um, if it's your labor, then I'm going to say, uh, what would it cost to replace the work that you're doing on the place? Right. So if it's, if it's 40,000, 60,000, 80,000 a year, whatever the number is, uh, then, then that's what we're going to charge your business for that. So, so rather than charge those cows, uh, you know, an hourly rate for every time I go out there and work, uh, you know, if I, I need, if, it, if the number is 50,000, I need 50,000, whether I'm running 200 cows, 400 cows or 600 cows. Okay. I, I'm not going to cut my wages back a little bit for every cow that I sell. Right. So, so I think it's uh, nice to make big round numbers. Um, if it's depreciation and repairs on your equipment, then what is that annual number? Okay. If it's uh, 
$50,000 a year depreciation repairs on equipment, then, then that's what we need to cover. Um, and so uh, we're going to make those targets and then we're going to develop a plan to achieve those targets. Okay. So we were working with a gentleman last week uh, and, and his annual overheads, uh, labor, leases, uh, depreciation repairs on equipment uh, was running around, let's say it's 150,000, right? Okay. So, so then we had the margin uh, for each of the enterprises that we do. And then we're able to back into that, what kind of scale he needs to be running at with those margins and that nut of overheads in order to, in order to achieve his goals. I just want to clarify one thing there, Dallas, just so everybody out there listening, um, Dallas and Ranch for Profit, you refer to them as enterprises. Um, somewhere along the road, I picked up a profit, I call it a profit center. Just for everybody out there, it's the exact same thing. When, when I say profit center and he says enterprise, we're talking about the same thing. So the different enterprises on your farm could be a cow-calf enterprise, a feeder profit or a feeder enterprise, uh, your hay enterprise. So um, just to clarify our, our terminology there, just to, so they don't get confused. Awesome. Uh, next up, we have Wyatt. Wyatt, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Great. All right. Uh, thank you guys for hosting these. It's been, I've got to tune into a few of them, really enjoy it. So uh, my question was for you guys with custom grazing experience. Um, how do you decide what you should be charging based on labor, forage yield, you know, what people are leasing around you? You know, how do you go about determining that? Because I'm down here in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And so besides wheat pasture, which this isn't, uh, how do you, there's not a lot of custom grazing rates. To go off of, I guess, what I'm saying. I'll, I'll take that one first, Steve, and hand it to you. I know you do some custom grazing. We, we do as well. Um, you, you mentioned there's not a lot of uh, other rates to go off of, uh, but there, there would be a market price for it, even if, even if those rates aren't published. Um, so I, I'd say you charge the most you can get for it. Um, you know, and, and it's different parts around the country. You're going to see that price move quite a bit. Um, for us, the further West we go, uh, oftentimes the cheaper it gets. Uh, and then the, that Nebraska area kind of tends to be the center of the, of the high priced custom grazing. It's all in what somebody's willing to pay for it. And sometimes there's months where, where it's overpriced and months where it's undervalued. And, and so figuring out, you know, what, what will my, who is my customer? What kind of hole am I filling for them? If it's a time where they're sending that animal to you instead of having it feeding hay, right? It, they might be, have a $3 a day cost in, in hay feeding. So they might be ahead to pay you $2 a day to custom graze it. Um, so it's kind of figuring out that, that market price and, and where it's sensitive and, and who, the, who that customer is. But if you advertise widely, um, you're going to find people that are, that are interested in coming. Um, and so don't limit yourself to just people in your area. All right. Thank you. And that, that margin is specific to your farm. Okay. What are your circumstances your land rent might be different than the neighbors? Um, that's one of the biggest mistakes I made was I was, you know, I, I would pay what the neighbor was willing to pay for land rent. Um, well, they were losing money, right? Like it, it didn't, I, I rented quite a few pieces of land when I first started that I lost money on it for, you know, the entire time I had it because I was just going on what the neighbor was willing to pay. So I eventually figured that out and let go of that land. Um, but it, it, it depends on what you need to do to make a profit on your farm. Okay. So it's very unique to your farm, that piece of land, like every piece of land that I have, I do a margin on it separately because the, the travel distance between my place and there is different. The land rent is different. The production is different. So I have what I call a, a pasture calculator that I have. It's just a simple Excel spreadsheet that I run. It's kind of a, 
um, a, a contribution margin. So we've, we've talked about a gross margin. A contribution margin is one step higher. Um, and uh, I run that to figure out each piece of land. Is it making me a profit or not? Um, and if, if anybody here wants it, uh, just email me and I can fire you off. This. It's just a simple little spreadsheet that helps you figure that out. So uh, by all means, now don't, don't write your email in the chat. Cause I'm not going to write down 35 emails. Uh, if you want it, you have to email me and then I can reply to it re real simple. And next up we have Alexis. Are you there and ready to go? Yeah. Hi. Awesome. I'm wondering about risk management. Um, I'm not ranching now, but it seems to me like it's pretty inherently risky kind of industry to get into. There's a lot of unpredictables, unknowns, and a lot of things out of your control, like climate and weather. And so far I've asked a few farmers about how they manage risk financially. And they've just told me like, have a backup skill so you can go get a job when things go bad. And I just like, don't find that an acceptable answer. <laughs> um, cause like, I don't think any other industry would operate like that. Um, so do you guys have any advice on how you manage risk and kind of create like financial stability in the long run? Well, it's kind of like going to Vegas, isn't it? <laughs> well, risk is the biggest part of my business that I've tried to eliminate. Okay. I, I'm a custom grazer. Um, I've eliminated the risk of livestock death, death loss. I've eliminated the market risk because I don't actually own the cattle. Um, the only risk I truly have is, is weather, right? And really for me as a custom grazer, it's only rainfall because I don't care if it snows early. I don't care if we get hail, right? I can still harvest my crop. Um, as a custom grazer, my other big factor that includes risk um, in Alberta and actually all the provinces in Canada have it. I, I don't think the States has it, but we have something called the Animal Keepers Act. Um, it is, uh, gives me a lien on the animals that I graze and uh, basically my lien comes before the bank, right? So every time I'm thinking about, well, maybe I should go buy some animals, get, you know, maybe get into something. I, I lose that security of that uh, animal keepers act. If I, you know, I could still do some custom grazing, but I don't have that in, in when I own my own animals. Basically what it does, says is that if they don't pay me what they they owe me, I can take their animals to auction and sell them. And I get paid first. The banks don't like it because my lien is has priority over the bank's lien. So if they have a loan on those animals, I get paid first. Um, the problem is it's a it's a lien of possession only. If I let them take those animals home, I lose my lien. So in 20 years, I've only ever had to threaten it twice. I've never actually had to act on it because it's you know it's a very powerful act. So I mean, of all the farming businesses that I could do, I think I've picked the least risky one that you could do. So Dallas, Alexis, just have some skills. You can do somewhere else if things go bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I like Steve's answer. So your, your enterprise selection is going to have a lot to do with how much risk exposure you have um, there. I think it's Greg Judy's book, uh, you know, custom grazing cattle on lease land, right? So it's a way to, to, to take a lot of that risk out, um, you know, and, and maybe it's not cattle, maybe there are other enterprises, but the, the, the choices you make as to what enterprises you're going to run is going to have a big uh, effect on how much risk you as the operator are accepting. Um, as you develop those leases, there's ways for you as an operator to have your upside be more 
but often in doing that, you're going to be the one accepting more of that risk. Uh, for example, one of the ranches I lease, um, I do it on a flat cash basis, right? I'm going to pay you X number of dollars per year, whether it rains or not. Um, now, that's cheaper that when we have a good year. But when we have a bad year, I'm absorbing all the drought risk. Um, as you start looking into, into ownership of those animals and those kind of things. So most of the time when you say risk management, everybody's going to think contracts, options, futures, insurances, and all those kind of things. That's the typical answer to risk management. And that can be a portion of managing the risk on those. So when you buy animals, like if I was to go out today and, and buy a set of stocker calves, I could buy a pricing point in the future for those. So I, I can take take my the risk of a market swing out of that. But in doing that, I'm going to give up some money on the, on the top side, right? It's going to cost me to do that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that risk management, it's a big question. And there's, you know, generally when the more risk you accept, the more the reward should be. It, it doesn't always work that way. Uh, but uh, if you are going to accept that risk as an operator, you, you need to say, well, I should be getting some more reward for accepting that risk. And, you know, the more established you become, oftentimes the more it does make sense to accept those risks because then, then you become the beneficiary of it. And, and if you have the, the means to, to eat those bad years, um, you know, it's, it's generally going to position you to be better. I think, too, on that, Dallas, would be diversification and not putting your eggs all in one basket, which is so much fun because it's the farming term. Um, you know, like, don't be afraid to think outside the box. We've run into farmers who are like, well, I am a rancher. I run cows. That's what I do. Right. When maybe their land isn't that good for running cattle and they might be better off being a shepherd. They, you know, to, to not pigeonhole yourself and to to be able to try th new things on a regular basis and not get stuck thinking, hey, this is where I am and I can't move out of this. I, I think that's key. Um, Mal Peterson, you were up next. Are you ready to go? I think so. How's that sound? Sound good. Perfect. Hey, Central Utah here. Um, originally, my question was the difference in gross margin analysis and trading account. Um, now I'm wondering if I'm using the right tool uh, to assess what I did this last year, make projections off of a single enterprise last year, and make projections for this year and the following year. Um, as we are just a one enterprise business right now, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm if I'm not using those tools in the right way. Any discussion on that? Any advice? So, so you said a couple things there. How are you, Mal? Good to see you, man. Uh, you said using projections. Um, I think that's a that's a point I wanted I want to jump on while you while you did that. So. I think it's most important to spend most of your time doing an economic analysis, doing projections, looking forward. Okay, I mean, if you if you're sitting there thinking, "Well, I want to run my 2020 numbers," uh, my response to you would be, "Why? What are you What are you going to do about 2020?" Okay. Nothing. Um, but if you're saying, "I want to run my projections for 2021," then then I'm all in. Okay, because when we do those projections, now we have the opportunity to fix it. Um, Val, I think you're doing it right. Uh, I, you should be doing a gross margin analysis um, on that on the enterprise you're thinking about running, or other potential enterprises uh, doing a projection with a gross margin looking forward. So uh, I think you're on the right track, Steve. Yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of times I'll tell people if they're learning how to do a gross margin, um, do last year's just to practice, figure out what happened, what, you know, get your, your head wrapped around it. And then you do your projection using what you figured out what actually happened last year. Now, okay, 
how, what do we need to change? What, do we, what can we go move forward on and do that projection? Definitely. Um, yeah. hundred percent. Sounds like you're on the right track. The fact that you're even doing a gross margin analysis means you're way ahead of 95% of the, you know, population. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. I, I, like you said, Steve, that's what we did as we looked at 2020, just to, just to see if we were doing it right. And now I'm wondering, um, what is the real difference in a gross margin analysis versus a trading account? Is it just terminology? I mean, this is like learning a new language for me, man. So I just want to make sure I'm, I'm up to par with everything. Yeah, I'll take that one if I can, Steve. That, so the, the trading account is a piece of the gross margin analysis. A trading account is what we use to calculate gross product. Gross product is a fancy word for the value of my production. So we use a trading account to have cash and non-cash income, uh, essentially inventory adjustments, cash income, purchases, and then inventory adjustments. We put those together in that trading account, and that tells us our gross product. Uh, we take our gross product, we subtract out our direct costs, and that's, that's the gross margin. So the, the trading account is one step in a gross margin analysis. Let me give an example for that, Dallas. Um, let's say you produced 100 calves. Um, you sold 80 of them, but you kept 20 heifers. Okay, your gross product is the value of all 100 animals, but your gross revenue is just the 80 that you sold. So you want to include though that product that you retained as a production, right? That's part of your gross product. Whereas you just sold 80, you only got a gross revenue for the 80. So you want to account for all of it. I love that Dallas gave you a thumbs up there. Did he get it? <laughs> I'm sweating on that one. <laughs> Next I, I will say that it was uh, a lot of pressure when Dallas Mount came and took my my school. He was one of the participants. It was pretty hard to have him sitting in the crowd while I was up there teaching economics. <laughs> that was a fun. That was a fun reversal. It was nice to be the student. So you guys did great, Steve. Next up, we have Blue Set. Blue Set, are you ready to go? I am. Can you hear me? Okay. We can. It's good to see you. Excellent. Too. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, hello, everyone. Um, yeah, some great questions. Uh, really appreciate that someone as young as Mal, um, I can only tell from your icon there, um, are doing, you know, these analyses. It, this is this is the, the new age where to be in business and agriculture, you have to be really sharp with a pencil. So I appreciate the conversation a lot. In fact, we just finished uh, doing gross profits for three and a half hours this afternoon. <laughs> um, so we're well-versed. Um, my question to both of you is in your opinions, what are or is the biggest barrier for young people coming into agriculture and being profitable? There are lots of different opinions out about um, what the barriers are, but I'm interested to know what you two think. Um, one of the biggest problems I, I guess I have is is finding land and, and locating it. Once I get the land, I, I seem to be able to hold on to it because my I get my human resource skills in there and, and hold on to it. Um, but getting the land, competing with the grain right now. Um, I mean, in 2007, when the U.S. opened up the ethanol market, uh, grain production went skyrocketing land values went up because they were all willing to pay more for rent so that was a big turning point where all the hay land got worked up the pastures got worked up and and uh trying to get a hold of land now is probably one of the hardest things for a new producer coming in i mean if they already have you know a, a family farm to come in that's an advantage but for new people coming in i think it's trying to get a hold of land 
I think I agree with Steve. Um, the 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 land transition piece is a is a big nugget of it. Uh, so my mind is going to those people that I've had the fortune of working with that are that are doing it. Um, that are you know maybe weren't born into agriculture, uh, but are but are creating a, a comfortable life uh, for themselves and their families and doing it. And and what do I see them doing different? I guess that's rising them above um, everybody else that that would like to do it. Uh, but just isn't making it happen. Um, and I, you know, Steve uses the word human resources. And and I, I think that's what I see them doing is they've developed good people skills to build those relationships. Um, I mean, everywhere I go, everywhere I teach this stuff, people say, well, you can't rent land in my area. You know, land is held really tight. And, and I look down the road and somebody just picked up another lease and that person then added another lease to their place. And, you know, I, I got had the fortune today of riding here with a young man that um, got out of college oh, maybe six, seven years ago, uh, $10,000 in total assets to his name. And, and now he's controlling um, enough ranches to support five full-time families um, and, and has done that, you know, from just uh, being um, extremely, genuine in his dealings, um, being a good businessman. Um, and you know, not that he hasn't had some wrecks along the way. And I, I think we're going to, we're all going to have those wrecks and, um, it, uh, but so uh, I, I think it's a really the human resources skills that, that really separate those operators that are able to build their businesses, um, in, into something that'll really support a family. Well, and so if if land is the biggest barrier and we've already kind of talked about the um the paradigm of having to own land and Steve I, I recognize that you're talking about you know finding land to rent um what I hear you saying is that it's maybe about human creativity and that maybe is the barrier because if we don't actually need to own land um are these young folks coming in with all of their ingenuity and energy and creativity, carving out an entirely different sector of agriculture that we can't even imagine with all of my gray hair, you know, my creative limitations. Um, and, and then therefore, how encouraging that could be to the young people coming in and saying, you know what, I can create a new agriculture, even without that land barrier. I don't know what that is because I don't have that creativity, but they certainly do. Can I interrupt? And that's what brings me hope. You bet. Can I speak to that, Blueset? Just because it's something that I'm pretty passionate about. I am wearing a Young Agrarians t-shirt right now, although I'm one of the older Young Agrarians. Um, we won't so say how old. <laughs> yeah, you better be quiet. <laughs> um, so young agrarians, it's really interesting. If you go to any of their meetings and they're open to everybody, I mean, of course, with COVID, we're limited on, on where we're meeting and stuff. Um, but I've been up in the Grand Prairie region with young agrarians and there's 60, 70 young people and older people that are meeting up and people passionate about farming. Most of them, and Dana Penrith, who's been on with us, she was one of the ho first hosts in this, um, could speak better to it. But the majority have no background in farming. They're coming in with, you know, no knowledge really outside of what they can get off of YouTube and from people like Dallas and Steve and yourself, Blue Set, other people that we've had on, on this program. Um, and they come in with this passion and these background, I, I found within agriculture, so many people have 
they've gone to school for agriculture. They know agriculture. They grew up in agricultural families. That's what they know. Um, the people that I've met at Young Agrarians, they have backgrounds in engineering. They have backgrounds in web design, in social media, in marketing. Um, so you bring in these different backgrounds. And I think it's just, it's a whole new level. And I, I agree with you that they're, they're coming in with a creativity that maybe we haven't seen before in agriculture and something that that we really do need to see in the future. And sorry for cutting in. <laughs> Excellent. Just to let everybody know that uh, Blue Set's actually uh, next week's special guest. Uh, um, really looking forward to that one too. So it's an honor to have her here. Thank you, Blue Set. Next up, after my, my rant there, uh, we have Clay Connery. Clay, are you ready? <laughs> oh, this will be a tough one, Dallas. <laughs> yeah, so I got an email earlier uh, today, actually, from somebody who said that they are leasing land to somebody who's bringing cows to them. So they own the land, they're leasing the land, and then the guys bring in the cows and the management to them. But the and the guys also making improvements to the land, uh, as far as uh, infrastructure improvements, uh, fencing for sure, maybe water, I'm not sure. Um, but he said the guy refuses to take any direction on how those cows touch that land. So my question to you is, how have you quantified, have either of you quantified the damage done by overgrazing or, you know, the lost production done by overgrazing? And would that, would that infrastructure improvement be a good trade for that damage uh, on some level? Or would you just say, okay, if you want to, if you refuse to manage the cows the way I want to manage, you've got to build a fence where I tell you to build it. And then by default, they end up having to manage cows the way you want to manage because the fences get built where you want them. All right. Yeah. Um, I think I, I, if I was in either party of that, I think I'd probably get away from that arrangement. It sounds like they're, they're starting off at a, at a point of distrust and, and not getting along well. Um, so it, all sorts of red flags are jumping up there. As, as a grazer, it makes me very uncomfortable when landowners want to dictate um, what numbers I put where. Um, a, as a landowner, um, I, would be, I would be high on results. So I would want to say, show me the land health. At, at, you know, show me the, where it is now and show me what change you're making through your management. And, and I'm far less interested in how you make that change as a landowner. I think those landowners should should largely just kind of step back and say, um, show me the results you can make. If this is the condition the land is in, um, I want you to show me through evidence that uh, it's getting healthier, right? And if if they can do that with continuous grazing, knock themselves out. Um, I, I'm skeptical, okay? Uh, but and as, as a grazer who leases ranches and, and grazes cattle and other people, I like to have a lot of freedom with how I do that. Um, you know, I'd, I'd rather them not tell me, put this number ahead in here and take them out on this date. I'd rather them say, uh, you manage it as you want um, and just show me that the land is getting healthier at the end. Now, the whole infrastructure development piece, I think I'll leave that for Steve to comment on. Um, I guess my comment on that would have been right away. Yeah. Look for another customer, right? If I was the landowner, which I'm not, right. I'm not, a, not the landowner in any of my situations, but if I was, I'd be looking for someone who's, you know, understands regenerative grazing, uh, understands the, the ecology of it. If they, you know, if that's the person that came to me and they don't understand that, well, I'll be looking for someone else. Um, you know, are they going to, if they're not putting the infrastructure in to do regenerative grazing, well, what infrastructure are they putting in? 
right? Honestly, to me, it's fencing and water systems. If you're going to continuously graze it, chances are they're not putting any of that in, right? Are they just uh, perimeter fencing or what's the, what's the infrastructure you're talking about? Right. Yeah. I don't know what that infrastructure was. And that was kind of my reaction at first was, well, just find somebody else that wants to come in and, and manage the way you want it managed. Uh, but the fact that they were willing to make improvements, put a little bit of a, a hitch in that, uh, in that mentality, I guess. And I just wanted your perspective. So thank you guys. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever quantified the damage done by continuous grazing. I think I've you know, I could maybe do it the other way around and, and show the improvement when you switch from continuous to, right. I guess you could just work it backwards then that, you know, if you're only making $20 an acre with continuous grazing, but you can make, uh, you know, 175 with regenerative grazing. Well, then that's, there's the difference, right? How much is that worth? And every field's different. I just randomly pick numbers there, but every, every pasture is different. So. Steve, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. So when leasing land, um, we have one landowner that really doesn't want any cross fencing on his property. You know who I'm talking about, right? Um, and instead, we've put it with a much larger piece where we've gotten pieces that are connected to it. So that becomes one paddock rather than being it. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit, Steve. Yeah, if yeah, one of our uh, one of our pastures is about a thousand acres. And one of the landowners is he's got about 140 acres out of that. It absolutely he's an old timer, you know, really likes what, that I'm there. He wants me to graze her right to the ground. Um, right. Cause that's what he wants it to look like. And he, he won't allow me to put any cross fencing on there. Cause that's not what they did. Um, so it does work in my situation because it's 140 acres connected to the other, you know, 860 acres. So I just use it as one paddock. I would love to put it into at least two paddocks because it's mostly a bush quarter. Uh, it would They would graze it down better, more evenly if I could get it into at least two paddocks, but he absolutely refuses to let me do that. So I just wing it, right? I, I don't expect really good results out of that because they're out there for too long of a graze period, but I also don't pay very much for rent for it. So I would love to do a better job, but um, I'm restricted by what the landowner says. So. Yeah, I think the balancing out of it. Mel, you're up again. Hey, guys. Sorry to keep interrupting. No, um, you go for it. Glad to got uh, two grazers I can ask us to do some custom grazing. Uh, we've been bouncing around uh, and analyzing the idea of uh, selling the cows and just being custom grazing in the winters. We're set up to do that fairly well. Our concern we get when we, when we talk to people that would bring us cows is if you get four foot of snow overnight, do you supply the feed and feed them till the snow is gone? Do I come pick up the cows or do I have to bring you the feed? Um, that's a tough one for me to, to for me to analyze. Just wondered if you had any clauses and agreements for that. Uh, if you seen anything like that in practice? I've been through that a few times, right? But in, in advance, I don't own any animals. Um, my contract is pretty clear that I don't have any risk on that. If if something goes wrong, then we we do plan B. Okay, now what? Um, if, but, but I'll lay that out in front of them. Okay. So we're going to try and swath graze this year. You know, maybe I don't like to swath graze all winter in my perfect, perfect world. If I could do it the same, um, I would like to swath graze till about uh, maybe into January sometime and then switch to bale grazing because I've never had a wreck in swath grazing in, you know, November, December, January, right. I've never had a wreck then all my wrecks happen in February and March. 
right? That's when you get the freezing rain or the big snowstorm. Or um, so ideally, I can do that. There's been a couple of winters where we, you know, haze through the roof. So I say, okay, well, we got this swath grazing a few years ago. We got 450 acres of pea straw residue that we we're going to graze. So okay. So here's the risk factor. If we get too much snow, if this happens, right, I, I lay it out for them. Then we might have to buy some hay. I got a guy down the road that has excess hay. It'll be this price if we have to, right? I just, I try and think of every possible example and, and make sure they know ahead of time what the risks are. It's not my risk because I don't own the animals, right? I haven't invested in that. Um, they're basically, I treat my contracts like I'm an employee for them, but I'm working at my place. So if anything goes wrong, it, it's their risk still. That's how I have my contract laid out. So Dallas? Uh, yeah, Mal, I, I think if I was bringing you animals and, and you said, hey, if it snows up tight, um, you, you, you can either come get your animals or um, let's say you're charging me a dollar fifty ahead of day to graze them, um, it, or it would drop to some base level, like kind of a yardage fee, a storage fee for those cows. So maybe that's fifty cents ahead of day, twenty cents ahead of day. I don't know what that is. And then I send you hay, and then you feed it for me for so many dollars per ton, or or whatever that might be. So I, I think through your contract, you can you can have some arrangements that would give uh, both parties some some assurances as to if that happened, what would it look like. Awesome, Great, thanks guys. guys. A question for you guys. Could you guys speak more on that? Speak to contracts and what you think needs to be included in them and when to use them. Now you're making it a, a real complicated, boring topic. It's um, not boring for a lot of people. <laughs> contracts was the most boring presentation I've ever made. I couldn't figure out how to get a joke into it. You better make um, it interesting then, Steve. Come on, <laughs> expect you to step up your game a little bit tonight. So my answer to that would be, if anybody wants to see my contract, you can email me and I'll send it to you. But it's written in Alberta. You'll have to change it, take it to a lawyer and get it adjusted. But yeah, that's a that's a long answer if I was to go through a contract right here. So Dallas, you got something quicker than what I'm thinking of? Yeah, I, I don't know. I uh, So the, the grazing contract, the first year I worked with people, we sat down and wrote out that contract. And, and now I'm on my seventh year of grazing for the same customer. And uh and, you know, we just do it on a handshake. So I think it kind of depends on the relationship with those, um, you know, uh, but I think when in doubt you want, you want to have it. it, it does not every contract needs to be written by a lawyer. I think some you can, you can draw up on a piece of paper. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do. Here's how we understand it. Here's how we're going to settle disagreements and go from that. So with that, would you guys say, cause not Everybody has, and this is going to speak to human resources, um, probably more so, but not everybody necessary. Communication is a huge thing and communication can be very difficult in a lot of situations. So even thinking like a multi-generational farm, you know, how important is it to have something written down so that when you go back, you can be like, you know what, this is what we agreed on. Do we need to add to this? How, how important do you guys think having those contracts are? I was going to say my contracts with my cattle customers are every year, right? I, I, I make sure I get them done because when the push comes to shove in the cattle industry, if something goes wrong, I need to have a contract on that side every time, every time, because that's where the arguments are going to come on my landowner side. So I have uh, 12 or 14 or 15 different landowners right now. Most of those end up being on the handshake. 
like Dallas said, because it's, it's a trust issue. Everything comes down to trust. Um, as I, you know, the first year when I get new land, boy, we go through a contract. Even if they don't really want to sign one, at least we go through it. So we've talked about everything on there, but most of them sign it. And then once it expires, then it goes on a handshake after that. It's just a inferred a contract. But every year on the cattle side, I, I get a contract for sure. Cause yeah, some of those have gone sideways on me. I don't think I'd have much to add on that. The, the one thing is you were talking about that, about uh, in family businesses, you were saying of, of having written things uh, that, that my mind really went to is having effective family business meetings. And, and I think when you have those effective family business meetings, having some written product as a result of that, it really changes the nature of those meetings for a positive way. And, and what I'm thinking of is something like a whiteboard or a flip chart or, or some kind of thing in the room where uh, at the end of that, uh, you know, we call them what be meetings working on the business at the end of the what be uh, the product is an action plan. And, and really it's just a, who's going to do what by when and, and what's the result that's going to happen. Who's the responsible person for it. What's the date at which they think they can have that done. And maybe it's not the whole thing done, but at least it's a, what, what's the next step, right? So the next thing to be done is this, and, and here's the date. And, and then when you have another, the next meeting, which hopefully is scheduled and, you know, on the calendar, two weeks, a month, whatever the right date is, the first thing you do is you go back to that. You said, okay, here was the action plan. We left the last family meeting with, give us the update. Okay, where, where are we at on this? And, oh, you, it didn't happen, but, but didn't you put your name by that? And there was a date. Okay, well, what got in the way of that? Well, how can we prevent that from happening next time? Right. And, okay, is it going to get done this time? Okay, you bet. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, taking your question and going a little bit different direction with it, sometimes those uh, written documents as a result of family business meetings can be extremely valuable. I think that's an interesting, uh, you know, because in family business means you don't think of writing things down. You don't think of a contract, right? Um, so, yeah. And I know that is what you're talking about next week, right, Blue Set? I'm going to call on you even though you're not ready for it. Um, we'll see if she, she's there. Yes. That's what you're talking about next week, right? I would be willing to go down that hole for sure. I... Um... I think that next week has a lot of possibility. I'm happy to to dive into that, but I certainly have a lot of experience in family business. That's fun. That's awesome. We're all we're almost at time. So if there's anything else that anyone wants to kind of get on the record right now and we're on the podcast, then then go for it. I would uh, say let's let Dallas do kind of a close out here and uh, go ahead, Dallas. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's been great to see some faces, some familiar and, and a lot of new ones. Uh, it, it, I want to emphasize the power of, of looking into your numbers to, to find that what things on your farm or ranch are working, uh, what things are not working and what can you do to change it? Uh, I mean, oftentimes we, you know, the, the tendency is to look at these and say, it's all happening to me and I'm the victim here. Uh, and I really want to turn that around and put it in your hands and say, you know, you have every choice about how your business is structured. You know, what's the overhead structure of your business? Who decides that? It's probably you. Hey, what enterprises are you going to run? You're going to make those decisions. What, what kind of direct costs are there going to be? What kind of growth product are each of those going to produce? So that has every impact as to what 
what the economic returns from your business are going to be. It's all within your control. And, and the power to take these things and to make decisions from them. Uh, most family farm size ranches, um, you know, when people apply these principles, in the first year, they usually find fifty to $70,000 of value. Um, sometimes it's more like $100,000. And then as they get better at applying them, that value continues to increase. So, so we're talking about not just one-time returns, but returns that can happen every year, time and time again, as we learn how to put these tools into place. And, and really, it gives you, it's kind of like driving that car, right? And, and sitting behind the wheel for the first time. The first time you sat behind the wheel, all these controls and knobs felt strange. And if you've been with a young kid and you've put them behind the wheel the first time, you've got to, to see that happen, right? And their unfamiliarity with these. But as you sit behind that wheel of that vehicle, you start to learn what these things do and how it feels. And, you know, then pretty soon you're just reaching for things and twisting all these knobs and levers and not even thinking about it, right? The economic analysis should become the same way. It should be like sitting behind the wheel of that car and saying, well, that's a gross margin issue. Well, that's an overhead issue. That's a gross product issue. Here's where I reach for it. And pretty soon you're driving that vehicle without even thinking about it. And those things are becoming natural. Um, so I, I would encourage you guys to dive into these things. There's all sorts of resources, whether you come to our school and pick it up from Steve, uh, but there's all sorts of resources to help you get good at doing these things, but it needs to be, you need to be the driven, the driven one to make it happen or, or find that person within your business who's going to be driven one to make it happen. So I want to give you some motivation on that front. Do you have any resources you'd like to share, Dallas, in chat? You know, I think if they go to our website at ranchingforprofit.com, um, there's we have a lot of free stuff on there from our YouTube channel to our social media. Uh, there's hundreds of profit tips articles that have been written over the years. Uh, so people can pick that stuff up there. Uh, when you're ready to learn this stuff, we hope you come to the Ranching for Profit School. Um, I mean, we've been teaching it longer than anybody, and I think we've got a pretty good track record for doing it. Um, so I'd, I'd love to have you come when the time's right. Um, so, but yeah, I think just going to our website, they can sign up. If they're not already getting profit tips, uh, they can on our website, they can sign up, put their email in there. And twice a month, we deliver a profit tips article. One would have just come out yesterday. And I think I saw Steve shared it across, across his social media. So, um, so yeah, reach out to us that way. Awesome. And for our podcast listeners, that is ranchmanagement.com. Awesome. Thank you very much, Dallas. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, and I can't em emphasize enough to everybody on here, uh, the value of that Ranching for Profit school. Um, it was one of the, the most influential schools or, or of everything, anything I ever did. Uh, it was very powerful to be down there. And I, I really appreciate the, the um, Dallas wasn't the owner at the time, Dave Pratt was, but I really appreciate everything that I learned from, from that school. It was a fantastic thing. I remember selling four cows just to take it because I couldn't afford to take it. So uh, it's well worth your money. If you ever get a chance to take it, uh, don't hesitate. It's well worth your time. Um, it's an investment. It's not a cost by any means. Uh, I guess to close out, I'd just like to thank the sponsors again, uh, Gateway Research Organization and uh, Great Wooded Forge Association. Thank you very much for uh, sponsoring us. And uh, uh, Nervous Angus, uh, bro Nervous Brothers Angus, I guess it is. Uh, thank you very much for being our charity sponsor tonight. And, and we'll, we'll make sure that money gets down to uh, Action International. Um, by all means, I put the their their link in the chat there, uh, check out Nervous Angus. Uh, they've got some uh, lot, lots of uh, grass-fed or grass-based genetics that they're selling over there. So I would highly recommend you take a uh, look at their website. 
And uh, yeah, again, thank you, Dallas. Um, very, very much appreciate you being here tonight. Thanks for the invite, Steve. Appreciate that.